Welcome to the Pre-Hype Podcast. If you're new to the show, let me give you a little introduction. I'm your host, Henrik Gordelin, and I spent my career building new ventures, both as a co-founder, as an investor, and as an advisor. In this podcast, I'm inviting really smart entrepreneurial people out for a walk and talk while we get some coffee and talk about some of the skills and the tools and mindsets they use to solve problems in a scalable way. I hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome to my little podcast. Thank you very much. Ian, how do you describe yourself these days? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, I guess I'm like an enthusiast about machine learning startups and, you know, political economy, China and the broader evolution of sort of tech. What we've seen with software has been that the US and China have sort of become the two dominant countries. And I think one of the risks of AI is that the technology just reinforces that further because they have the resources in terms of compute, in terms of profits they can reinvest in frontier research, and in terms of digital assets that they can deploy machine learning against. And so I, I just think that machine learning and AI is going to be, you know, a general purpose technology. I, I personally think it will be the last general purpose technology, but that's a very sort of uh, like AI maximalist worldview. I think it will have enormous implications for economic, military and technological contests between nations. And as a result of all of that, we need to be thinking hard about the political economy of AI. You're painting a picture that is fairly different from the status quo. Well, I think that the commercial the sort of deployment phase of a lot of these machine learning techniques will be through the next kind of 20 years and you'll see massive amounts of change in the commercial sector as a result of the deep learning and at some point soon probably deep reinforcement learning techniques. I think that like the geopolitical implications have moved a lot faster than I thought. I mean, I, I first presented this sort of AI nationalism thesis in December of last year and since then, you know, the UK government, the French government, the German government, the EU and South Korea have all announced national AI plans. So I've kind of been surprised at how quickly government has kind of done something. Yeah. But I think the more radical stuff is still a few years out. You know, the Manhattan Project is kind of an interesting example. Obviously, it was in, in wartime, but it is kind of crazy that the US government went from employing zero people in 1941 to employing 100,000 people three years later, spending $25 billion over those three years to build out industrial capacity, the, the scale of the entire US automotive industry. And I think that's what a lot of entrepreneurs and people in the private sector underestimate about the government is when it needs to act, it can move with enormous amounts of energy. And I, I think we're starting to see that in terms of the sort of the directed thinking of the Chinese government on AI, but it's, it's, it's early still, you know, and I, I don't know when, you know, you can say exact events will occur. Yeah, I just went to this store that I fell in love with in the Flatiron District called Camp. Yeah. With my uh, daughter and my son. And what was amazing about it is it's a, it's really an experience. Um, they also have a membership club. And my daughter's probably too old for it. She's How 10. old is your daughter? 10. But I wanted to go, so I took her with me. She loved it so much, even though it was a bit too young for her. So here's kid word of mouth. She comes home and tells her four-year-old brother, you have to have mommy take you to this store called camp. That's awesome. So of course he's like been on me. I want to go to camp, I want to go to camp. So we took him. Not only was everybody wonderful and friendly, and it was, they knew their audience. The build was simple. Everything was kid tailored. And actually the merchandise is not that different from what you would see at a cool bookstore or a toy store. And the name. 
because he comes back and he remembers it and he still is talking mm. to his friends about this store called Camp. I took my uh, five and a half year old there and um, the people who haven't been there, it just looks like a normal kid's store. Yeah. And then there was like a staff member that was standing over in the corner by a big kind of shelf area, a big shelf, and uh, called my son over and like kind of like waved him over and he looked nervous at me and I kind of go over there and I was like, yeah, go over there. So she leaned down and she got like, what's your favorite word to stop and see? And he looks at me and looks at her and she goes, cake? She goes like, that's exactly right, that's the magic word. Oh my and gosh. then try to push the, uh, the shelf. And so he pushes the shelf, right, and this like big secret space opens and he cannot contain himself. He's so excited that he's kind of like running on the spot and he goes like, gonna go in. And so he walks in there and then there's like all these amazing things in there. And it's good in many ways, right? It's good because they, they have like really good stuff, like it's merchandised really well. So there's a lot of fun stuff. I like that there's a lot of like small things he could do when he get tired of looking. So there's a little trampoline, there's a little slide. It's like amazing, right? I there. think a, a bird just shot on my arm. Oh, wow, look at you. The thing that's common, that's telling me something. Uh, Too much praise. Yeah, you said the New York bird saying, dude, stop kissing yeah. ass with this yeah. guy. <laughs> <laughs> this has to stop. What can we do? Let's shit on him. <laughs> Why, wash it in the snow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good point. <laughs> this is not necessarily wash. Like, this is the dirtiest yeah, snow you've ever dirty. seen. No, it's, like, it's a step down from bird shit. <laughs> it's like a criminal, like, eating yellow snow because you're thirsty. <laughs> Sorry. No, <laughs> I apologize for our birds. <laughs> Glad that you take responsibility for it. <laughs> well, you came uptown. I know that's difficult for you. No, You're a downtown guy. Fourteenth Street. <laughs> I feel very uncomfortable up here among rich people. Yeah, I, we're, what are you talking about? All the rich people are downtown. <laughs> so now that you are both an entrepreneur and a meditation expert, there I say. Ish. What do you think entrepreneurs can teach people who are into meditation, and maybe easier the other way around? I think an enormous amount. <laughs> you basically have to kill yourself all the time in order to achieve what you want to achieve. Yeah. And I think meditation is an amazing technology for keeping the good parts of that impulse and jettisoning the super pernicious impacts of that impulse. Because I'm not of the view that this go, 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 drive, push, 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 build, 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 scale, 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 impulse is entirely wrong? Clearly not. But it can be really destructive to individuals, to the relationships those individuals might have, to the companies those individuals might found. And I think meditation can help you separate wheat from chaff to see, okay, does this impulse, like to stay up all night tonight and work, make sense? Or is that gonna just actually reduce my effectiveness and make me an asshole and maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I should get sleep tonight. Maybe I should send this signal to my staff that they too should be engaged in self-care and we'll all be healthier and happier and therefore more successful. That I think it would be a really healthy thing to introduce in entrepreneurial space. I think as an entrepreneur, you have a thousand things to do. So you feel naturally inclined to 
be somebody who kind of multitasks all the time. Yeah. And so what I learned from meditation is that if I can go in and be fully present in that one hour, I'm much more efficient than if I sit in the meeting and on my phone at all time. And interesting, and this is where it gets like philosophical and maybe a little bit weird again, is that I think coding principles and meditation actually have like overlap. I'll give you an example. If you were an operating system and you were to load something in from storage into your brain, RAM, right? Like which is like the equivalent of your, your brain. And then you had to switch to something else. Now, let's say you're having dinner with your wife and she goes to the restroom. Most of us would then grab our phone and start to kind of look, right? <laughs> now, the problem is that if you think of it as a computer, there's switching cost. You would have to offload everything in RAM, then you have to reload something else, and then you would have to compute that. And when she walks back, you have to do the same thing. You're using a lot of computational power for something where it's probably much easier just not to make that conversion. And there's something, I read this book called uh, Algorithms to Live By, which is fascinating if you just read it after a meditation, because that there's actually a lot of principles that if you think about it very mechanically and not humanistic at all, it's actually kind of prescribing you to the same behavior. I'm totally sold. I think that makes complete sense. Um, so I feel that the art of meditation is very much an entrepreneurial tool because it simply allows you to be more efficient. That's right. Um, Anora, I've always been fascinated by how you find opportunities to do entrepreneurial stuff by basically out Amazoning Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> but do you mind just explaining who you are? Yeah, so I spent my life trying to do so many different things that I never know where to start. I grew up right outside New York. And I was in some ways a good child, but in most ways probably a terrible child. My room was always messy and failed all my classes. And, but I loved like building random shit and like, can I, I can curse? You can curse all you want. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. And just trying to, trying to stir things up, you know? Um, I try to work with what's out there in a way that you're not supposed to. You know, I think the majority of people obviously do it sort of the way, the way you're supposed to. Um, and I think the most interesting things come from using things the way they're not supposed to be used. Probably my favorite, my favorite uh, little hack um, was trying to get people to call me because I didn't have their phone number, I didn't have their email, I didn't have anything except for their address. These are not people. These are not people just to call you. These are people to call you for the business, right? Yes. Or was it just just getting to you? I was trying to make friends. <laughs> I just, I just trying to get people to call I was me. Just lonely, man. <laughs> Sorry, you were saying you were trying to get people. I was to... trying to get people to call because I needed them to do. So there, was, there was a good business case for it, but I didn't have their information. All I had was their address. So I thought a lot about it, and I was like, "How can I get these? Like the one percent thing, two percent isn't going to work. How can I get like, like a ton of these people to fucking give me a call?" So I went to the FedEx store with a task rabbit, and we just spent the day there, and we got these massive FedEx Express boxes, like the big like FedEx Express logo, like the big white box, the whole thing. And like hand wrote the labels, put my cell phone number at the top and put like a lot of tape, like made sort of like shittily across it, like made it look very human, you know, lots of mistakes on the book, just all of it. And in the box, do you want to guess what we put in the box? Oh, what the hell have you done in the box? Nothing. Exactly. 45% called us. No. Yeah. And then what did you sell them? 
I tried to get them to change their review. Ah. <laughs> 70% changed their review. Oh, that's a cool way of doing it. Yeah. What's, what are you, let's go back because it's getting cold. What's the, what are other of your favorite hacks? My favorite hack of all time, not one that I did. There was this bike manufacturer that um, some crazy percent, it was like 30 or 35% of their bikes would arrive damaged. Yeah. And they lost a lot of money, obviously. And so one of the guys on the team was like, wait a second, overnight, we can solve this problem. It'll cost like a few cents per unit. And they did it and it brought it down to like five or 10 or something percent. And it literally cost cents. And the next day it, it was a thing. You know what they did? No. Like, oh, so brilliant. They printed a TV. Instead of writing fragile, because no one listens to that shit, they printed the TV on the side of the bike box. And to get over it being confusing to the consumer when they get a box of the TV on it, they printed a bike on the TV. That's brilliant. That's what? my favorite one. You've done a lot of cool things, but you're a pretty shy person. I try to Google stalk you and you have to dig a little bit deep, right? I've, I've sort of cut down on my outward facing presence, yeah. I uh, haven't really figured out why I want to be out there. No. But yeah, I've, I've done a few things. This is another way of saying old. <laughs> yes. One of the problems of building something from the outside in is around immigration or reintegration or spinning in. Um, it's one of the great friction points and fail points. And when I talked about Brickhouse, I said the, uh, the transplant didn't take, the organ was rejected. So solving that particular problem has been something I've been focused on with some of the newer efforts I've been doing at Google, uh, Area 120. And one of the ideas behind it was that we are very good at acquisitions at Google. I, it really is a machine. We do dozens of these a year. Uh, we are really good at uh, bringing those companies in, spinning them up at Google and getting them productive. And so part of what I've done is sort of leverage those tracks so that when we build something and want to reintegrate it, we actually do it through the same process as M&A so that it looks like an M&A with a bunch of advantages. First of all, it's cheaper. That's not a big problem for Google, but I think more importantly, we built it right the first time. So it's like a startup who decided on day zero, we want to be acquired from Google and let every decision is sort of seen through that lens. So how we build it, the technology choices we make, the business choices we make are already in alignment. And then the third point, which is meaningful, is that everyone building it already has a Google badge and is uh, a Googler. And so the sort of cultural shock and friction of sort of coming in from the outside, that's behind us too. So what I want to do is still let Google acquire dozens of companies each year, but two, three, or four of those will be things that we've built in a bespoke fashion and can reintegrate back into Google with much less cost and friction. Actually, let me just pause it. It is just yeah. incredible with the High Line. Yeah. You know, just, we're just literally walking in between houses I and know. almost like it's a different city. Like, so cool. Bjark Engels is doing one yeah. I saw. Bjark and I sometimes talk about these things yeah, about longevity yeah. and building something that uh, lasts. One of the things where I'm incredibly envious of him is that he'll build things and he'll be there for 100 years. Right? That's true. 
and your some, code will not be running uh, code will not be five running years from now. Five years from now. And <laughs> Funny, we're walking by a clock right now. And I spoke to Ian in another podcast, who's an AI expert. He had an interesting point. He was talking about like, what is the pyramids of our time? My wife, I was just walking with her talking about, I think we're in, we're in some country with, you know, very, very beautiful uh, buildings from sort of, you know, um, 500 years ago. And I sort of said, what do you think is going to be the kind of the equivalent of this cathedral for our time? And she said, Wikipedia, that, that we are building these new types of organizations, or we should be building more of them, which basically, because of their structure, can sustain time. For example, you said you're going to Denmark. Like Denmark is interesting from a corporate point of view because a lot of the companies, I think, you know, honestly, for tax reasons, many years ago were turned into trusts. And so if you take like the Carlsbergs or the Legos or the Novos of the world, a lot of their board is governing the company based on the mission of the company, not on uh, financial return. I love because that. Because the majority of the equity is owned by these trusts which basically say, well, your mission is to, you know, for Leo Pharma, make sure that people don't have skin disease or for Novo have like a full life even if you have diabetes. Um, I think it's kind of interesting of like, what is kind of like longevity in our world where the half-life times of products are getting shorter and shorter. So first you are Nora Glass, but you're not the Nora Glass that comes up when you Google it. The thing that I was keen to talk to you about, it's really about resilience. You've been running your business from 2005. Okay. You're pretty discreet as a person. In my view, has this very impressive, kind of like steady win the race. I have a mission. It'll take whatever time it'll take, but I will win this. And so what are some of the tricks that you use to stay in it? Uh, great. Well, I like that lead-in. I mean, I, I feel like that's true that we are not a high flyer. In fact, we were recently featured in TechCrunch for a fundraise at the end of last year, and they described Olo as a low-flying company in our space. And at first, there was this very long initial period, which was starting the company in 2005. And now when I look at it, I kind of blend that all together up until at the end of 2012, almost. We were quite small. We were like a 12-person company, but there were a number of companies doing things that seemed a bit like what we were doing. More of an online ordering focus, less of a mobile focus, mobile ordering. It was a great period of time. It was a period of time where it forged some really tight friendships. We have think about one another as family members that we grew up together. This is when people were meeting their true loves and getting married and maybe starting to have kids and like everybody had the same profile where they were smart people without specific skills and i think of them as like stem cells you know they were going to come into the organization without specialized skills but then figure out what they wanted to do and specialize in and that truly happened some people went into sales some into products some into customer success some into more administrative roles, uh, but we all just kind of found our, our niche. Is that difficult when you grow bigger? And I'm asking because I can definitely feel that in Bark, for example, we definitely have like different generations of people that came in, right? There's the original gangsters. I like the notion of stem cells. And then as we've grown very fast, we have new people coming in who you know, it's as loyal to the mission as the original people, but like just have a little bit less of organizational history. And 
it's difficult not to sound a little bit like a fake mm-hmm. when you talk about like family and people go like, yeah. yeah, but I've been here for three weeks. <laughs> you know, like, I'll tell you what's super cool. I, so I still do a welcome to Olo one-on-one meeting with every new employee that we have. I'm talking about an era when we were 12 people. We're now 180 people as of this week. And I, I, that often comes up, this like family first mantra, which is literally on our wall, the, the number one value. And now it's manifested itself in a company that is majority remote. So it's about 55% of the company now doesn't work out of the New York City headquarters, all domestic but different parts of the country. And for that crew, what family first means is I get to pursue my career and be close to my family and not have to waste an hour or two hours of my day commuting into an office. And it's this amazing unlock for us of talent all around the country. And by the way, those people that were like that initial group are by and large like still in the company. And it's this amazing thing where we're like, we're celebrating so-and-so's 13 year anniversary and so-and-so's 12 year anniversary. And it's like an amazing thing to have people with that kind of legacy. Now in pretty big roles in the company, our CTO, our head of sales on the West Coast, our head of customer success, like these are people who all have been with the company for over 10 years. It was uh, like six years ago. You know when you're typing to someone in iMessage, they'll see uh, that infinite like iMessage bubble yeah, yeah. animation? So I made the GIF version of that <laughs> so that when you send it to someone, it actually like, it auto-plays as we know GIFs do. So people would actually think you're forever texting them. So I like threw that on a website. I seeded it to like people anonymously and then watched BuzzFeed pretty much like quit working for the day (laughs) because they wanted to be like first to talk about it and like write about it and even like Jonah Peretti was using it on his friends and his sister. Screenshots were flying everywhere on Reddit. People working at the Apple stores were complaining saying, why are so many customers coming in saying their phones are broken (laughs) because of this gift? You're kind of like a white hat troll. Yeah, exactly. My name's Gabe. I run a small company called Mischief. And really at the end of the day, what Mischief is, is an attention and fame machine. I started my career at BuzzFeed. I wasn't on the list team or the quiz team or the video team. There was a different team where the idea was how do you create experiences and tell stories in different formats. That has long since shuttered, but I left and ended up creating Mischief, which is sort of the continuation of that grand vision. But really, at the end of the day, I've always just been addicted to trolling people online in a healthy, positive, uplifting manner and figuring out how can I take technology and devices around me to create experiences that just get a ton of attention. And when I say that, I mean like getting on The Ellen Show, getting press, going true viral where people like have to actually share your stuff. And you started off by making a lot of campaigns for a lot of brands. For sure. So even like before the brand started getting in touch, I was making things like Trump announced he was running for president. I bought friends who like Trump.com and redirected that to your Facebook graph of your friends who have liked Donald Trump. (laughs) And for like $11.99, that was my highest ROI project of all time. Because within hours, you know, pretty much everything had shut down talking about that link. NPR like talked about on their show about 
how this was like dividing the country. Honestly, I probably did more harm than good on that one and I apologize. It was stuff like that, like what, what are the storytelling devices around us? How do I pull it together and do something that stands out beyond like an Instagram post or a blog? What is the first step for kind of like learning to think like this or learning to do like this? That's a good question. If I had to teach someone how to do this from scratch, if I was to sit a college student down and say, here's how you come up with a mischief idea, really it's just sort of like narrowing down a theme. So let's say you look around in Times Square and people are always like taking selfies with superheroes or like Sesame Street characters, right? That's something that's always happening. So sort of like map that out on a whiteboard as the topic, people taking selfies in Times Square. And then just start plotting out all the mannerisms. Start plotting out the things that you observe, things that you see, things that you find amusing, and more importantly, problems. Identify the first world problems. And if you can make a good list of those, like one classic first world problem with the Times Square analogy. There are too many tourists and not enough Captain Americas or Elmos, right? Yeah. Cool, map that down and then just start coming up with solutions and tying them to those problems. Eventually, you'll come up with something that generally will involve an input and an output, some sort of interaction, some sort of experience. We have a whiteboard that's dedicated to spontaneity of ideas. I erase it every single Friday and put in an idea pool, which I have a process to like flow through and sort of cut down into our pipeline. But that's sort of a free space where at the end of each week, we sit in front of this whiteboard and we're like, what crazy shit did we come up with this week? Like today, I looked at it and someone wrote CBD infused communion wafers. <laughs> I think the CBD game is about tapped out, but that one might keep it alive. <laughs> we're culture hackers. Everything is a storytelling device. Today, I'm walking with Stacy, Kristen. <laughs> who we've not worked with for seven years. Yeah, plus. seven plus years, yeah. And I guess when you started, you did everything, but the last many, many years, you've been running the Barkbox content teams. You're a pretty humble person, but if you were to give yourself credit for like the rise of the celebrity dog, how much do we play in that pot? I think, I think Barkbox was the first company like the dog influencers started to be able to like actually make a little bit of extra spending money each month and become like a part of a business which is like really fun it's just like a hobby to have these instagram handles and we kind of like made it a legitimate thing for them to be able to do do you think anybody had made a living out of, of yeah being? i can't tell you how many dog agents i have emailed. <laughs> is this dog available for this event is this dog available for a commercial i mean the first time we had like in our contract employment contracts you basically we have a lot of dog puns and jokes kind of like where people have to sign that they will belly rub dogs <laughs> yeah. in the office and there's one where it says you may elect to basically get paid in cash or in treats which is kind of funny when you send it to a human the problem is when we start to send it to all these celebrity dogs, we got like angry emails back like, we don't want treats, we want real money. <laughs> the celebrity dog stuff was big for a while, right? I yeah. guess it still is. Yeah, I mean, I think like the moment where I was like, this is going to be enormous was when we hosted the Tuna Tour. So Tuna is one of the first really famous internet dogs. He's Tuna Melts My Heart. He got really famous on Reddit because his face looks like 
a perfect little tuna fish. <laughs> um, and we hosted the tuna tour. And it was an eight city tour up and down the East Coast. And we had a party at our office and we bought a red carpet because we didn't have event stuff back then. And we rolled it out and we opened the doors and looked out and the, the line to meet tuna was all the way around the corner. That's amazing. I think one thing that would be extremely good is if more entrepreneurial people went into government. I think we would see more ambitious policy proposals, more bolder thinking. And I think that, you know, the people who currently work in government contribute an enormous amount to us. They bring a very different skill set. But I think that the entrepreneurial skill set is kind of a valuable one. The more it can be injected, the better. And I'm not for a second suggesting that entrepreneurship is like the only skill that matters, no. like whatsoever. But we could do with a bit more of it in government. So you're running for office? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> but I'd like to help people who are. Thank you so much for listening. I got a favor to ask. If you like the podcast, then it would be awesome if you could share it on social or rate the show so others can find it too. Also, I'd love some feedback. Just tweet me at, at Wordlim. I'll be back with more entrepreneurial walks and talks very soon.